0: You know, we love going over the Apostles' Creed each week, as Bill said. It's a great way to remind ourselves of the gospel. And what's neat is our our kids memorize it so fast. Um, we've been doing it for about a year and a half now, maybe almost two years, and I know some of us adults, we're almost there, but our kids had it like after the third time, Uh, so that's one of the reasons we do it. Uh, Sometimes people ask, well, what about the part where it says Catholic Church? What are we talking about there? Um, That refers to the universal church, that Jesus has one body, and so that's what that's referring to, that we believe Jesus is over the holy Catholic, his body, the church, Um, You know, there's a couple announcements that I did not mention today. In fact, I don't think I did any of the announcements this morning. Uh, So just real quick, a couple things that are coming up. April 18th, kind of a big day. Uh, for one, if you've been visiting with us for a while, we're doing a uh, just a luncheon right after service. We'll do it in this room, what we call the youth room, um, just over here to my right. We invite you to stay after service, just a kind of time to get to know uh, just me, the elders, just some of the people in the church, ask questions. Also on april 18th at 5 30 that night we're going to be coming back and we're going to be doing a faith and justice uh night which means we're going to be talking about what is biblical justice and what what does the well what is justice and social justice and what does it mean that people are crying out biblical justice and we're just going to try to look at god's word and understand what is justice what is our role today so how do we speak into these issues um and so that'll be what that night is, and so that'll be a fun night. We're going to gather, and so if you have your um, calendars, go ahead and mark that down, and we will be uh, meeting at 5.30, probably for about two hours that night, and I'm guessing that'll either be a two- or three-part series, which means we'll gather several other times to kind of be talking about it, because it's a pretty big issue. Well, uh, Welcome, it's Easter. Isn't it exciting? Today is Easter. I know we've said it several times, but if there's no Easter, there's no gospel. I mean, there's there's no reason for this gathering. There's no reason that we come and we praise God for a crucified Messiah if he did not raise. And so uh, we are excited that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. He is the reason that we are here. And so uh, what I typically do on Easter, and it's one of my favorite things, is we'll preach through an entire Old Testament book and just show how it points to Christ. Um, We're not doing that this year, and we're not doing that for two reasons. Number one, we are in the book of Hebrews. And so we're just going to continue on. We're going to be in chapter three of Hebrews. We've been preaching through, through Hebrews, and Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You see, Hebrews is written to a church that's struggling in its faith. They've been persecuted, they've been beaten, they've been arrested. Many of them have had their possessions taken from them. And so the church is beginning to doubt its salvation, or doubt its faith in Christ. They're beginning to go, should we keep believing in Jesus, or should we revert back to Judaism? Most likely this church was made up of Jews who had then believed in Jesus Christ. And so they're wrestling with, if we go back to Judaism... We won't be persecuted. Maybe that's what we should do. And so the author is encouraging the church to press on into the faith. And so he, throughout the entire book, is highlighting the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he does so by contrasting it with various things in the Old Testament and showing how Jesus fulfills all that took place in the Old Testament. So that's reason number one. We're just going to continue on in Hebrews because it's just about the supremacy of Jesus. Number two, when we come into chapter three, we read this, that the author is gonna say, we need to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So that word consider, he's saying that we need to think deeply about Jesus. We need to rightly understand who this Jesus is. And then he says, the confession that we have. And so that word confession refers to what we believe. So he says we need to think rightly. We need to think deeply about what we truly believe, what the Bible really says about Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's what we're going to do today. Because so often we kind of stick with our Sunday school answers. Um, if If you're down in junior church and you're like in first grade and you say Jesus to every answer or to every question, that's probably right, right? which is awesome. We want our kids to know that. But at some point, we really need to be adding content to that faith. We need to know, why is it Jesus is the answer? Why is it that we gather and we kind of smash into a room and we get crowded? Why do we willingly and joyfully do this? What is it about this Jesus that we gather? What is it about him that's worthy of worship? And so, We're going to be considering who Jesus is. Now you might be a believer and you say, but I'm already a Christian. I don't need to think about Jesus anymore. Well, this text is written to a church. And so to say that would would really just be going against the whole purpose of why Hebrews, and and in fact all the New Testament letters are written, and in fact all the Old Testament letters or books, because they're all written to God's people for the building up, for the encouraging of them. And so as Christians, we need to continue growing in our faith. And I hope that as you see, as we make our way through this text, it's as we continue to consider who Jesus is, that we grow in our faith, that we mature, and we're able to help others also. Now you might be here and say, well, I'm not a Christian. Why do I need to think about who Jesus is? Well, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, she wrote a book titled Confronting Christianity, and she, in that book, she quotes a Harvard professor, Tyler Vanderweel. and he is a world expert, and this is his, his explanation of himself, he is a world expert on the mental and physical benefits of religious participation, and so uh, as far as I know, this man is not a Christian, but he looks and he says this, any educated person should at some point have critically examined the claims for Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. You might say, well, why? Why is that the case? Well, McLaughlin goes on and says, it's because Christianity is the most widespread belief system in the entire world with the most far-reaching intellectual footprint and a wealth of counterintuitive wisdom on how humans should thrive. I mean, Christianity has gone to every single continent, to every single country, and it's continually being preached today, and it will continue to be preached until the day that Christ returns. And so I encourage you, wherever you're at, whether you are a Christian or have not yet believed in Jesus, to consider who Jesus is, because if he rose, which is what we believe based upon God's word, if he rose, that changes everything. And that means he exactly is who he is, and he is the only way to have everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. And so, without further ado, we'll go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 3. So I want to encourage you to stand. One of the things we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's word. Now, we do this because we believe these 66 books in the Bible are inspired, inerrant, and infallible. They're given for the purpose of correction, encouragement, and equipping, And so we're simply acknowledging that this book is different than every other book on your bookshelf. For this comes inspired to us by God himself. So chapter 3, verse 1. The chapters are the big numbers. Verses are the little numbers. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just praise you right now. We praise you that you have sent your son Jesus to be our high priest and that he would offer the perfect sacrifice himself. Three days later, rising from the grave, proving he is the Son of God, proving he is the Messiah, proving he is the one who has conquered sin, death, and Satan. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would give us clarity as we read your word, that you would grow us in our confidence in your word, and our conviction would be strong that, Lord, you are the Son of God. Lord, may we know that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life, and he is the only one who brings about forgiveness of sins. So I pray, encourage us and equip us today in our faith. And if there is anyone here who has not yet trusted in you, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the beauty and the truth and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And they would believe in him today. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, maybe seated. So we're going to do what the author has told us to do, consider Jesus. Uh, and we're going to do this by looking at four pictures. The first two pictures are about Jesus. The third picture is about the church. The fourth picture is what it means to have faith in him. And so we're going to begin picture number one, Jesus as a man. In verse one, Jesus is called An apostle. Now, the word apostle just simply means to be sent. And so what we understand, according to God's word, is that the Father sent the Son, Jesus, and he willingly came to earth, empowered by the Spirit, that he would accomplish what God had called him to. And so the important thing to understand here is that Jesus is sent by the Father, and he willingly came. He did not come begrudgingly, he did not come dragging his feet going, i got to go down to earth, i got to go help out these people called humans, but he willingly and joyfully came. And we know that because in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he'll tell us, for the joy set before him, he came and did the mission that God had called him to. Now we might say, well, what is this mission? What is it that the Father sent the Son to do? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Jesus is not only called the apostle, but he's also the high priest. Of our confession and if you'd like you can go back and listen to last week's message where we really unpacked a lot more of what it means that Jesus is our high priest but in a quick succinct way a high priest is one who makes sacrifices on behalf of others and he represents man to God now in the Old Testament the high priest would first make a sacrifice for himself because he is sinful Then after that, he'd make another sacrifice for the people because they are sinful. But what we read throughout the Gospels and in Hebrews is that Jesus comes as a high priest and he makes one offering, not two. He is perfect, he is sinless, so he only makes one sacrifice. And that sacrifice is himself. So see, Jesus is not only the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And he does that to pay the price for our sins. Now you might ask, but, but why? Why did he have to actually die on a cross for us? What was the reason for this? Well, when we come to things like religion, religion seeks to explain the world for why it is the way it is. That's what religions do. It's, it's worldviews. It helps us understand how everything works and why it all is the way it is. It also addresses questions like why we are here, what do we do? Now, now, in all honesty, the atheist has really no concern for such questions. Because to be an atheist would be one who would say that you that we are here because of random, uncontrolled, unguided evolutionary processes. They do not believe in a transcendent being, thus they only believe things inside of creation explain the things in creation. Therefore, there is no purpose for who we are, but we are rather just the cosmic evolutionary accident of a process. And we all know that order doesn't come from chaos, and so there is no purpose behind humanity. So to ask such questions would really be inconsistent with their worldview at a core. But the Bible. In places like Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, but God has placed eternity into man's heart, which is why we keep asking those kinds of questions, which is even why the atheist will ask the questions and will wonder, why are we here? What do we do? And what is the problem? Why is the world the way it is today? Now, according to God's word, we understand that that he is the creator of the world. And in fact, when we look at creation, we see the order. We see the beauty that is about us, and that points us to a creator. Wherever there is order, that points you to someone who created that order. And so by simply uh, general revelation, meaning just looking at the way the world is, we can see that there is a God. And the Bible tells us that this God made man in his image. And he made us to have a special relationship with him. So actually, what we saw early in Hebrews, that we would share in his glory and his joy, that we would rule over creation, and that everything we do would reflect the very love of God, and we would honor him and glorify him, and we would enjoy his blessings. Now, do we see that? Not really. We don't see just humanity enjoying the very blessing of God in every place. Rather, we often see that there's pain. We see there's hurt. We see there's evil. In fact, this last week down in California that crossed the headlines was four were killed, one was a child. And we're seeing things like that on a regular basis, not only here in America, but in all other countries as well. There is just this thing which we call evil. And we see it all over. And so we must wrestle with why is there this evil? Why? Why do these things happen? Now, again, the consistent atheist will not ask this question, but because they're not consistent, we wonder, why are there these things? We know that there is a good and evil. Now, some people will say, well, it's based on karma. Just if you do good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. And so, their answer for why evil or terrible things have come into your life, well, you probably did something bad in this life or in some previous life. Or they'll say it's fate. And fate is basically just saying, you got dealt these cards, and those are your cards. Good luck. Hope you make it to the end. And those are the answers that really almost every worldview will give, but the Bible will come, and it will say the reason that there is evil in this world is because man has sinned against God. Meaning we've rebelled against his rule. Rather than follow him, rather than obey him, rather than love him, we said we actually have a better plan. and We'd like to decide and determine the things we want to do apart from your will. And so what this means is that the problem is not out there which is where we so often want to point isn't it we want to point at circumstances we want to point at situations we point want to point at uh at the context that we're in at other people and yet according to God's word what we see is that the problem lies within our very own hearts which is why every continent every country Every people group wrestles with evil and sin. And so, man's primary problem is not political or social or sexual or political or anything out there. But it's in our hearts. And what God's word says is because we've sinned against God, because we've rejected him, we're guilty before God as a judge. And we deserve his wrath. We deserve his infinite wrath. And it's because of this, we need someone to come and pay that price. But the problem is, you and I are sinful. So if we're sinful, we're not able to pay the price for our sin. We need someone who is innocent, who is guiltless. And so that's why Jesus comes as our apostle, sent. That's why he comes as our high priest, that he would offer a sacrifice himself. And he does that on what we call Good Friday, where he offers himself on a cross that he would stand in your place and my place. So that he could atone for our sins. But here's the thing. This is, this is the first picture we have, that Jesus is man. We need someone to stand in our place. But Jesus, if he's actually going to stand in our place and absorb God's wrath and the wrath of all who will believe in him, he has to be more than just a man, doesn't he? He can't just be a man. He can't just stand in our place. We need him to be able to stand in our place and absorb the wrath of God. And what God's word tells us is that if you and I do not believe in Christ, we continue to reject him, we will spend eternity in hell. That's how long it will take us to pay the price of our sins. Eternity. Which means there's no way we can pay for it. And so if someone is going to come, They not only must be able to stand in our place as man, but they must be able to absorb the very wrath of God. And that brings us to the second picture where we're going to see that Jesus is man and God. And this is where he's going to begin contrasting Jesus with Moses. And it's kind of a a strange thing. And you might go, really? We're talking about Moses on, on Easter Sunday. How does that actually work? Why is Moses important? Like, why does Moses all of a sudden come into the conversation? Well, remember, we're working with a church that came out of Judaism. And so they're steeped in Old Testament theology. They know the first 39 books of the Bible like the back of their hand. They've studied it. They've memorized much of it. They understand it. And and so they're wrestling with if they go back to Judaism, then they will no longer be persecuted. But here's the thing. If they're going to go back to Judaism what do they do with Jesus they can't go back to Judaism if Jesus is the God man but what if he's just a man what if they deny his divinity what if they do that if they do that then they can go back to Judaism and they won't be persecuted and life will be easier for them and so so they think of who's the greatest guy in the Old Testament Moses Moses is the greatest guy in the Old Testament and so if Jesus meant then we know he's not greater than Moses And so all we got to do is think a little bit about who Moses is and if we can say he's greater Then we'll go back to Judaism. We're done with Christianity and no longer will we be persecuted? So that's the train of thought. That's why Moses comes into the picture and just to give you the quick Moses bio He wrote the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There you go. We're all tracking. Moses was the one chosen and appointed by God to save Israel and bring them out of Egypt. Moses is the one who led them through the Red Sea. Moses is the one who led them through the wilderness. Moses is the one who goes up to Mount Sinai and brings down the law of God. Moses is the one who meets with God what it says face to face in the Old Testament so that his face shined with the glory of God. Don't you wish you knew what that looked like? I don't know if many of our faces look like they shine early in the morning. But Moses, he goes into the very presence of God, and he comes out, and he's shining. And so he puts a veil over his head because it kind of freaks everyone out. It's hard to look at the guy with the shiny face. And so this is Moses. No one's greater in the Old Testament than Moses. No one spoke to God like Moses did in the Old Testament. No one had a relationship with God as intimate as it looks like Moses had. And in verse 2, we read, Moses was faithful in God's house. So when, it reads, when you read the word house, in this passage, think God's people. That's what we're talking about. So uh, we're talking Israel in the Old Testament, and church in the New Testament. So that's what we're looking at. So every time you read house, just think, we're talking about the very people of God. In verse 5, we read, Moses was faithful like a servant. But now look back at verse 2. So here we are, chapter 3. We're talking about Jesus. And he goes, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful. So we start out, Moses is faithful, Jesus is faithful, okay? Two very faithful guys. But then we go to verse 3. And notice what it says in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. Than Moses, So here we have, we have two faithful people, and Moses is, is glorious, but Jesus is far more glorious. Why? Look down at verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a what? As a, as a son. What was Moses? He was, a, he was a servant. And if you walk into someone's house, and they have servants. I don't know if we really have that around here. But if you walk into someone's house and they have a servant, no matter what position that servant has, he might have the highest position among all the other servants, he will never attain to the glory of the Son. The Son is the heir of all things. The Son rules over the servants. And so the first thing he wants us to know is that Jesus, yes, he's a man and he's the very Son of God. And when we read, when we read Son, we don't mean created beings. Like he was the first created being, and then after Jesus, he made everyone else. Think, uh, we'll go back to our, so if you're not with us a lot, we talk about superheroes a lot, uh, especially Marvel. Uh, So think Thor. Odin is the, uh, we go, like every week we make it back to Marvel. Um, Odin's the father, right? And Thor is his son that comes from him. Thor is created. Thor is not eternal. Thor has not existed as long as Odin has. That's how a lot of people will view Jesus. Okay, you got Odin, you got this eternal father, and then you have the the first created son, and then after him you'll have the rest of humanity and everything else that exists. But what we have in God's word is Jesus is God's son, co-eternal and co-equal with the father. In fact, go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. We spent a whole sermon looking at verses 1 through 4. And I just want to remind you what we read in verses 2 and 3 about Jesus. It says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we're talking about Jesus, whom he appointed. So Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the one whom all the the world was created. Verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, which means... If you look at Jesus, you're actually seeing the very glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the one who upholds the, word, uh, the, wor- the universe by the word of his power. So there is no way the author is wanting us to think, okay, Jesus is just a man, or he's just the first created man, but he wants us to have this category, Jesus is God. He came as man, but he's also God. Are we tracking? So that's the first thing he wants us to know. Secondly, Moses was faithful as a servant in the house. Okay, so, so Moses is, is a part of the house. But then we look at verse 3. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So when you walk into someone's house, you might go, wow, look at this trim. Look at this molding. I love the way the space is just created here. And you start looking at all the intricate details, and you're going, man, I, I really like this. If you're into home remodels, you'll find that as soon as you, like, walk into people's houses, you're, like, scoping out stuff. Yeah, I like that term. Ooh, they shouldn't have done it that way. I mean, just, like, noticing every, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Ron, you're tracking with me, right? Yeah. Ron's big into, like, home stuff. I do it, man. I'm walking in, and I'm always seeing things. But imagine you walk into someone's house, and, and you're just admiring the house, and you're just like, this This is like the greatest house ever. I mean, this is just, this is exquisite. I wish I had a house like this. And then the guy says, yeah, I built this. Who gets more honor, the house or the builder? The builder. He's the one who did this. He's the one who created this. He's the one who who molded it all, who put it all together. The house in itself has no glory apart from the builder. In fact, the only reason there is a house is why? Because there's a, a builder. So we go, Moses, great, but you, you want to go back to the house? What about the builder? How can you go back to Moses and deny Jesus who built the house? So again, it's these two ways, by pointing out Jesus is the son and Jesus is the builder, that he's wanting us to realize Jesus is not just any person. He is both man and he is both, and he is God. And it's because of that he's able to go to the cross where he's able to die and pay the price of our sins. And look at verse 5. In verse 5 we read this. Now Moses was faithful and all of God's house was a servant. So we got that. He, he's a part of the house. He's a servant. But now notice what this servant's role was. To testify to things that were to be spoken of later. So, what's Moses' role? Is Moses the end goal? No. Moses is just a sign. He's a big billboard pointing. (laughs) That has never, ever happened. Jamie, I need a bigger one. (laughs) So, Jamie redid this a while ago and made it look so much cooler. Um, I need a bigger platform, apparently. Um, That was weird. (laughs) as the builder you get (laughs) totally all the glory All right. um, so Moses Moses is a billboard he's just a sign and the whole point of Moses is to say there's a greater prophet coming you think I'm great there's a greater prophet worthy of far more glory one who will do far more than whatever I have done because Moses did he take the people into the promised land No, because he wasn't actually worthy to go in the promised land because he sinned. Well, What does Jesus do? In fact, you hang with us. You come back and we're going to be getting in in chapter 4 where Jesus is the one who actually is the greater Joshua. He's the one who brings us into the promised land as well. So Moses was always just a person who points us to the direction of Jesus so that when Jesus comes we'd go, yes. This is the one we have been waiting for. And so that's, that's really the beauty about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews teaches us how to read the Old Testament. All throughout the book of Hebrews. Very purposely and pointedly will show. Old Testament, Testament texts are pointing and preparing us for Jesus. Now the church... Church was trying to divide the, de, deny the divinity of Jesus. And really, ever since then, we have seen people try to do that for the last 2,000 years. They've either tried to deny the divinity or denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus has risen from the grave, and over 500 people saw him risen from the grave. And they were all alive at that point when that was written. So if anyone doubted, they just, need to go down to, they just need to go back to Jerusalem, and they could talk to Bob, they could talk to Jimmy, they could talk to Carl, they could talk to these guys who literally saw Jesus risen from the grave. If Jesus is risen, that changes everything. It means he is who he said he is. And we need to deeply consider Jesus On a regular basis. So those are pictures one and two. Third picture. Jesus comes and he's on a mission. The mission is to die and rise again three days later. What we call Easter. But why? To secure a people. To save a people. To build a house. A house in which he will dwell. And so we have a picture of the church. Look back at verse one. In verse 1, it begins with, therefore, holy brothers. Now, the word brothers can be translated brothers and sisters. And and the word holy means to be set apart, to be devoted to God. Now, remember, remember, what did we say? According to the Bible, what is the problem with humanity? We are sinful. We do not want to obey God. But now we're told we have become holy brothers and sisters, which means we now want to follow God we now joyfully want to obey his word not that we're perfect by no means do when we say that the church is holy do we mean right now we are sinless I think we covered this on Friday night but just to repeat you've probably sinned today you definitely sinned yesterday and you definitely sinned before that right and if you're sitting there going "Ah, I don't think so you just sinned so let's just let's just say we're all sinners But now we read, wait a minute, we are now called holy. You see, Jesus died and rose again so that he would give us a new identity. And that identity is very, very important. Because our identity is how we interpret everything around us. Do you know that? Based upon your identity, that's how you see everything. And sin wants us to find our identity in anything other than God. It wants us to find our identity in our job, our marriage, our race, our political view. Even the culture will now say that you can choose your own sexual identity. You can choose if you want to be male, female, transgender, non-binary, or add any other list to that. But know this. However you define yourself, that will become the lens in which you see and interpret everything. And one more thing about identity Your identity reflects what is most important to you. Your identity reflects where you find your worth. So let's just pause for a moment. What is your identity? What is most important to you? When other people meet you, what do you want them to know about you most? Is it your job, financial position, your role as a husband, a wife, a mother? father? Is it your self-identified gender identity? Is it your political view? Let me ask you, what happens if one of those things change or is taken from you? Do you know what would happen? The world comes crashing down. Everything you believe, everything you built your life upon will come crashing down. And so Jesus comes And he he says, I've come to save you from your worldly identities so that you would be adopted into the holy family of God. That you'd be brothers and sisters of Jesus. He'd be our elder brother. God would be our father. And look at verse 1. The next thing. It says, and that we would share in a heavenly calling. Do you know what that means? We share in a heavenly calling? It means that we are destined to live in the very presence and glory of God forever. Do you know that? Now just think about that. If the Bible's true, which we believe it is, there's a God who created all things, made man in his image. We sinned, rebelled against him. He sent his son Jesus as an apostle to be the high priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. He's also God. He rises from the grave proving he paid the price for your sins and then says if you believe in me you will have everlasting life i will share my glory my rule my blessings everything i have with you for all of eternity and no one can ever take that from you is there anything better than that identity that's what he wants us to know so again this church is wrestling he goes you want to go back to judaism that's ludicrous you have everything now in christ you are a holy family with a heavenly calling now because of sin because of sin we think getting other people's approval right now is what's most important we want people to acknowledge and accept our worth we want them to affirm who we are this is why people work long hours neglecting their families because they, they find their worth in their job or their money. This is why the world will be outraged at businesses that do not affirm sexual, certain sexual orientations because to deny my sexual preference is to deny my personhood, my very being in itself, so they would say. You can boil so much of the world's anger, hate, rage, and hostility right down to identity. Marriage is in because of identity. I'm not appreciated. I deserve more. People quit their jobs because of identity. I'm worth more. I should have more. When we place our identity in anything other than Christ, it is fragile, and we will do everything we can to protect it. But listen, here's the good news. Jesus comes to save us, so we don't need the approval the acceptance, the acknowledgement, or the affirmation of anyone in the world. Why? Because we have the approval of God. Do you get that? That's why, that's why then we can, uh, that's why we go do mission. Why we go out into the world and tell others about Jesus. And we risk our lives doing it. There are people in China, in Korea... And in many, many other countries where they risk their lives on a daily basis. Why? Because they know they're a part of God's family, and there's nothing that the world can do to change that. And even if their life is taken, they're secure in Jesus. Do you understand that? Now, the only reason they'll actually do that is because they've considered Jesus. And if you're sitting here going, oh, that that could never be me. Nope, nope. Never going to overseas. I just encourage you, keep considering Jesus. Consider who he is, what he has done, who he has made you, the security you have in Jesus, that you are now a part of God's holy family. Which means, if you're a believer, that this right now, this is family, as brothers and sisters. And what means every time we gather like this, there's a foretaste of heaven. Do you get that? Isn't that sweet? This is a forte. So when we gather and we encourage, like our time of fellowship isn't just random, hey, how you doing? Oh, it's great to see you here. What would you do this last week? I mean, that's what we do, right? But that's not the whole point. The point is it gives us just a little bit of time to interact because we love one another. Because we are connected with one another because of the blood of Christ. And there is nothing greater than this family. The blood of Christ trumps any other blood this is family above anything else because because of christ's blood we will never ever be separated those are the first three pictures picture number four picture of faith so we have jesus is man he's god and he saved the people so what does it mean to believe in him though And that's just what we're going to close by looking at today. If you're here today and you say, I have faith in Jesus, this is what this verse is going to describe. And if you're sitting here going, I don't have faith in Jesus, just so you know, this is what it's going to mean to trust in Jesus. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 6. It says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So again, remember, the church is being tempted to abandon the faith. So he's coming, and he's saying, hold on, hold on. You want to know if you're a believer? Hold fast your confidence and your boasting in the hope. Now, boasting in the hope, hope is not an action, it's a content. Jesus is our hope. So when he says boasting in our hope, he's talking about boasting in the person of Jesus Christ. Not not the action of hoping. Does that make sense? So to boast in our hope is (coughs) to boast that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Savior. He is the God man who came and died for our sins. What he wants us to know is that we have been saved to hold fast our confidence. Real faith perseveres. That's he wants us to know you want to know if your name is written in the book of life you want to know if you are a part of god's house you want to know that when you die you will open up your eyes into the very presence of god he says hold fast your faith in jesus continue to believe in america and i'll just we'll just call it america in america we so often want to limit our salvation to an event But rather, we need to think of it as a transformation. We have been transformed. We've we've gone from death to life. We've gone from out of the family to in the family. We've gone from not a building to a building. That we would now be a part of God's people. And to be a part of God's people is to continue to trust in Him all of our days. You ever watch the Olympics? I love the Olympics. I like track and field a lot. Do you like track and field? Just, yeah, of course you like track and field, because I like track and field. You like track and field. That's how this works. Um, I like track and field because I just think it's amazing. All those people, especially the sprinters, I mean, they just look huge. Like, they are just massive just specimens of muscle, like, and as they run. I just think it's incredible, and they run so fast. Now, have you ever noticed as, as they run, what do they do? Where do, Where's their eyes looking? Looking straight ahead, straight ahead, right at the finish line, the entire time. Not at the stands, not at the guy to the left, not the guy to the right. They're not looking back. Not looking for the popcorn machine, the snow cone machine. They do that afterwards, I'm sure. After four years of training, that's exactly what you do. But during the race, they just fix their eyes on Jesus. So, so the author is saying, you want to know if you're saved? Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what it is to be a believer. We fix our eyes. And the way we do that is by we keep considering Jesus. We continually consider who he is, what he has done for us, who he has made us, the hope that we have that we'll live with him for all of eternity. Um, Just as we read that Jesus has been faithful, so now as his people, we are called to be faithful. And he gives us his spirit. So that would be possible. So it's not, hey, try really hard, good luck. But he gives us his spirit who works in us that we'd persevere in our faith and we would keep our eyes on Jesus. And just real quick, one of the ways we do that is in community, is in what we call table groups earlier. We're getting to know one another. We spur one another on. So when we do have doubts, when we do have questions, we're surrounded by believers who can help us in our faith. So I want to encourage you, if you are a Christian here, I pray, consider Jesus. Don't ever stop considering who Jesus is. You came to faith because you considered Jesus. You will grow in your faith because you consider who Jesus is. And if you're a parent, I want to encourage you. One of your greatest roles is to help your kids to consider Jesus. To help them know who he is. What he has done for you. As disciples, that's what we do with one another. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus... I doubt the things holding you back is because you think Moses is greater than than Jesus. Now, if that's your hang-up, please come talk to me afterwards. We'll go back over the sermon. Um, And that's not to make fun of the situation here. Just, I don't think that's where our struggle is. But I do think if you've not yet considered Jesus, if you've not yet trusted him, you're either denying his divinity or you're denying his humanity. He was just a good guy, a good example, a good moral person. But he wasn't God. Or, sure, I'll give you he was God, but, but what does he really know of us? Well, I just encourage you to come into God's Word. Consider that if Jesus is both God and man, and he came and he died and he rose three days later, then he is the only way to have eternal life. And Christianity is an exclusive religion. What that means is that only those who believe in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. Now just about every other religion is inclusive, just so you know. Meaning, whether you believe the tenets of faith or not, you'll pretty much make it to some level of bliss or utopia. Some level. But Christianity says, well, there's a problem, it's because you're sinners. Jesus Christ comes as the substitute to die on the cross, as the apostle and high priest. There's no other means to have forgiveness of sins except through Jesus. So if Jesus really is the Son of God who came, died, and rose, then he is the only way to salvation. And showing up on Judgment Day saying, I didn't know or I thought there was another way will not allow you to be allowed to enter into the kingdom. Only those who have trusted in him. And so if you're wrestling in your faith, I encourage you, Pick up, look at one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Those are the books that walk through the life of Jesus. Talk to one of their people who are here. I'd love to talk with you. But I ask you to consider Jesus. For only those who have faith in him will be forgiven and have everlasting life. And we celebrate that with Easter. And we're about to go to communion. Communion's a time where if you have if you are a believer, We want to invite you to come and take communion. You don't have to be a member of our church. We want to invite you to partake of communion. The ushers will come in a moment, and they'll dismiss you row by row. We're doing it that way because of COVID rather than just passing it all. So you'll come, and you'll take, and it's double stacked. So make sure you grab the two cups. Don't just grab the top cup. I'll have to come and bring you that bottom cup. Um, So grab both cups. Um, But if for some reason you're sitting here, and you're just wrestling in your own heart. And you're going, look, I know I have some sin. And I need to, I need to repent. I encourage you to do that before you partake. And if you need to go talk to someone, if you're able to do that here, great. If that person's not here, I encourage you, just wait. And then next time, partake of communion with us. For this is something we do, not because we are perfect. But we come, and it's a means of acknowledging that our Lord and Savior has died on a cross for us. That we could be forgiven. So I'm going to pray, and then the listeners will come, and we'll take communion.